very good day to all the listeners of Blue Energy Podcast. A couple of years ago, I met Colin Hall and Steve Hall, two wonderful gentlemen in Mauritius where they were doing a leadership workshop. And when I heard about this whole topic around energy journey, I was curious to learn about what this is all about and how this is going to impact the way I communicate leaders and some other people. It was fantastic. We had a wonderful set of workshops and I was trying to teach this to other people. You see, I'm someone who always believe and lives the values of optimism. Everything that I've achieved in my life so far is a result of continuous mindset of optimism. But this blue energy was just mind-blowing and a topic that since it was taught to me by Colin, I start teaching to other people. Hence the reason why we call this a Blue Energy podcast. And today, and of the first episode of this podcast, my guest is in fact the person that I learned the topic of Blue Energy. And this is all about knowing that tomorrow is going to be better, but it will only be better if we do what we can within our power. And that power only comes with the human energy. Before I ask some questions from Colin, I would like to introduce Colin. I can talk about Colin for a day, but I like to keep that for two minutes. Colin is someone who carries over 50 years of corporate experience from various boards, including some of the most powerful breweries in South Africa. And he was an entrepreneur. He formed companies. He trained people. And also Colin is someone who has been well-trained and a master trainer on the seven habits of highly effective people. And he has taught this throughout South Africa in various organizations and communities and to a lot of people. Over the years, he learned the power of human energy. And he decided then to form a company with his son, learn to lead. And what they do right now is what they always wanted to do, which is teaching other people the power of human energy. So Colin, welcome to the Blue Energy Podcast. I am so glad that you are my first guest. In fact, a lot of credit goes to you for teaching this to us. I'm grateful that we met. What would you like to say as an opening remark, um, opening remarks to all of our listeners? I think what I would like to say most is that one of our best learners is Afif. <laughs> In all our years, we've never been able to create a, uh, a coach who's as good, if not better, than we are. So it's a joy to be with you, Afif. You were one of our great successes. <clears throat> Thank you, Colin. I'm, I'm grateful of all the things that I'm learning from, from, from you and also from Steve, and I'm grateful that the opportunity of us meeting together happened with Lux and while well, working for Lux and obviously I'm very grateful for that too. Yeah, so my first, question, my first question to you is that tell me about one or two significant experiences of your life which you are proud of. you got 60 years of experience. <laughs> I mean, there must be many, but one or two that is really significant that taught you a couple of lessons. Right. Well, the first one I want to talk about was when Steve, my son, was nine. I was a main board director of a big brewing company called South African Breweries. I was 28 or 29, and I was full of rubbish, 
full of nonsense when I got that job. And all I knew how to do well was to use power. And I'm going to call that red for the purposes of identifying red versus blue. I was a red player. What a red player means is somebody who can kick other people on the butt. <laughs> when I want something done, I tell people what to do and they do it. And what made it worse was that the company was a monopoly. It was the only beer business in South Africa. And when you are the boss of a monopoly, you are horrible. <laughs> you are horrible. You are red, red, red. And I came home one night and Stephen was nine and I came home a little earlier than usual. And he said, hey, dad, you're home early, but do you like a game? So I said, sure, but it was raining, so we had to play inside. And I tell you, as I've told many audiences, and I'm telling your audience, that when I tell a story to you, I feel wretched. Because what I had in my mind was not to beat Steve, but to thrash him. I didn't know any other outcome. You never beat people. You thrash them. <laughs> right. So of all stupid things, he chose to play me the indoor board game called Monopoly. I thought, son, you are in for a real hiding here. Because if there's one person in South Africa who knows how to play Monopoly, Monday to Friday, it's me. So we started the game, but before we started the game, I did two clever things. I took control of the bank, which he happily yielded to me, not realizing its significance. And I changed the rules of the game and I didn't tell him. And that's cheating. Simple as that, I cheated. Well, I thrashed him. It wasn't long before he had a huge problem of money, cash, and I had his cash. I'm not going to tell your listeners how I did it because maybe some of them will want to play it by the same. But to my horror, I saw in a, in a toy shop the other day a Monopoly game for cheaters. Can you believe it? Anyway, so the long and the short of it was that I thrashed him. And in our family, the loser packs the game. So there he was putting rubber bands around cash and all that sort of thing, shaking his head because I had been quite charming in the process. I've been ruthless, but very charming. And then he suddenly stopped and he looked me straight in the eye and he said to me something that I will never, ever forget. He said, Dad, isn't this a game? Isn't this a game? And I'm quite touched while I say it to you now. I left the table. I went to the toilet. I was ill. I resigned from South African breweries within a month because what Stephen said to me was, Dad, isn't life a game? Do you have to play it as if it was a war? And I had learned only how to play the game, read, as if it was a war. And why I'm proud of it is not only because I'm proud of him and his, uh, his wisdom, but I'm proud of the fact that I listened to him. Because it would have been very easy to regard that as a piece of nine-year-old rubbish. So I went on my own as a consultant. And when you're a consultant, you can't use power. You can't say to people, you will do this because they say, I might not. So it changed my life. So that's one of the stories of learning that had a huge impact on my life. The other was a very simple one. I found a, a line by a poet and writer from Ireland called Oscar Wilde, who said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people just exist. And I thought to myself, that's a terrible condemnation of human nature. 
Most people just exist. And so I thought to myself, what does it mean to live? And while I was thinking about that, I don't know what day it happened or exactly how it happened. I saw the fundamental truth that has changed my life. And that is that when your energy, your optimism, your passion is high, you're fantastic. And when it slumps, you're useless. And so I became a student of my own energy. And that was another incredible moment. Yeah. So there you go. Two wonderful stories. And I love the first one of how a nine-year-old kid change the way yeah. you thought about life and the power and why we actually exist as even human beings is not just to win but i suppose just to do what we do best and keep adding value to people and most importantly making other people better because of our presence i'm sure if we chose to play the game in a different way you probably we must have achieved a different outcome. Wonderful story. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy understanding and reflecting back on that. And my next question to you is that what made you realize or what particular incident made you realize about that this whole human energy journey? How did you come across with this? human energy journey and at one point or what point you realize this is something very powerful that we need to teach to other people another story yeah we were at a strategic planning session with the executive committee of Woolworths a retail business here in South Africa and I was the chairman so I was leading this discussion and um, we stopped in the afternoon to listen to our then president P.W. Boerter address the nation in what was known as the Rubicon speech. And he stood there and he tried to use power. He waved his funny little finger at us and said, apartheid is forever. Don't tamper with the system. Go back to what you're doing and shut up. And I knew because I knew then that power doesn't work as well as, it, as you think it works. I knew that he was talking rubbish and he didn't have the capacity to maintain apartheid any longer. That was in 1985. We went back into this, to the conference room and on the flip chart, I wrote, end of apartheid. And I felt naughty because you weren't allowed to challenge apartheid. It was a crime to challenge apartheid. But what I knew that day was apartheid was finished. So I felt good and I wrote it on and we all sort of hummed and hard. And then that night I didn't sleep. Because I thought, but what the hell follows apartheid? What's next? What is beyond? And the only example we had was in what is now Zimbabwe in, in Africa, and it's a disaster. And I thought, I don't want to go to that new country, whatever it is. And I'm supposed to lead 55,000 people, most of whom are people of color, to a new country that I don't want to go to, particularly myself. And I don't know how fast. I don't know whether it's one year, five years, or three years. And I, what I realized for the first time, Afif, was I knew how to manage, but I didn't know how to lead. The challenge of taking 55,000 people to a new destination that I was fearful of myself was bigger than I knew. And I thought the only way I'm going to know how to do this is to listen 
to listen to the people in the organization tell me under what conditions will they follow me? What criteria will they use to judge my leadership, my integrity, my vision? So I stumbled on the work of Stephen Covey. I got the franchise for it, and it gave me the opportunity with Steve to run programs with members of the staff from the top to the tea lady and to bring in other people like cabinet ministers and all who were black because we needed to listen for the first time to the people of color as to what did they want, what was their vision and dream. So that was what got me started teaching with Steve. But we used the work initially of Stephen Covey, which is about effectiveness. And then it dawned on me that it was actually not about effectiveness. That's fundamental. You, if you're not effective, you're not effective. But you can be a very effective worker and get up in the morning and not feel like doing anything. And that's energy. <laughs> that's yeah. optimism. Yeah. That's positivity. No, I, I, I love the way how you describe it. And I think the key take there is everything that we do, the, the quality of the work that we do has a direct link with the energy level of us. I, and not only the energy level of us, but the energy level of people around us. Correct, yeah. I often use this example. If, you, if you're in an audience, you ask everyone, do they love your, their job? I'm sure they're all going to say, yes, of course, they love their job. But saying that you love your job is not enough. You have to show and how you show is through your energy. Yeah. And, and the energy is the way you show up to work, the way you do things. And in your training programs and in various communications and uh, sessions that you do, I realized that you divide the people that lives in the world, all right, billion people into three different categories. Can you talk a little bit about this? And we all have a choice to be one of those categories, but I suppose you can explain it a little bit better so we know which category we actually belong to. Okay, but I'll go back to uh, Oscar Wilde who said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people just exist. So the first category is people who are alive, and you're one of them, if you. People who wake up in the morning, most mornings, not necessarily every morning, and manage to charge their batteries, get them started and get out into the world and live it fully, because you don't know if you've got another one. So live it fully. So that's one category. And when we meet those people, they just boost, they zoom our energy up. They whoosh it up because they're alive, they're full of energy. Then it was a wonderful writer in um, Burkina Faso, a country in Africa, who wrote, um, when death finds you, may it find you alive. <laughs> Those are the just existing people. They're waiting for death to knock at the door. And with covered on us, it's a nasty proposition. They're just doing nothing. Monday is Monday is Monday. And then the third category, I got the, the idea from the wonderful actor, my favorite actor, Morgan Freeman, in a movie called Shawshank Redemption. And there he is, Morgan Freeman, sentenced to life imprisonment. And every morning he gets up and charges his battery. He starts every day optimistic, positive, passionate. How good and only knows. And then Tim Robbins gets sent to the same penitentiary for murdering his wife, which he didn't do. And he can't be motivated by, by this talk of, come on, come on, be happy, be happy. 
So when Morgan Freeman finally gives up on this fancy word motivation, he says to him, son, if you ain't busy living, you sure busy dying. So I think the three categories of people I meet are either fully alive, just existing, or sadly, busy dying. And the impact of COVID in South Africa has been to change people's mindsets to being living and fully and all those kinds of things. To, I might be busy dying. It might be my turn next. It's terrifying. So those are the three categories. Well, this I is, know where you are. I know. Yeah, where you yeah. Are. That, that's very interesting. And and literally, the the people with the, the just existing, I suppose, are the people that anything that happens in the world for them, it's okay. They don't necessarily complain. They don't necessarily value. But the people who are on this high end, which is fully alive, are the people that actually make the world a better place. But yeah. the other people, whatever happens, they keep on complaining. So you're talking literally about that red energy and the blue energy, I suppose. The blue yeah. energy is those who are optimistic, who knows that the world's going to be a better place. Not that they don't have bad days. They also have bad days. It's just yeah. they don't react towards those things. But they and they don't give in. Correct. Correct. Don't give in. Exactly. And that's the reason why you are probably... 80 years plus now, if I may, or is that correct? No, 82. And 80 last year. I, so you're yeah, 80 year, and you're still got, with lots of energy. So you are one, yeah. one that delivers this energy to the world and to your community, mostly based around in, in, your, in your neighborhood, in the community, in the companies that you work with. Well done. A quick, one quick story. One quick story. Sure, go ahead. Last year, last year I got a diagnosis of cancer. And there's another example. If you let cancer beat you, it beats you. If yeah. you convince your white blood cells that your energy is high, your battery is fully charged, your attitude to life is I'm alive, you beat cancer. And I beat cancer big time. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I agree with you because we, it is evident that life is not going to be easy. We're going, no. the, world, the world is always and have always been a place where there is uncertainty and things happen just without us not knowing. But how we react to it and how we get through it, I think, either yeah. makes up or break up. And I regulate you on recovery. Most importantly, I think it probably may have helped with your, the way that you live and the optimism, of course, the right medical care and things. But most importantly, yeah. your mind, I think, probably set you to recover free. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the, you see this, uh, the world that we live in, like I've already mentioned, is, is, is very challenging. We're living in a global pandemic at this moment of time, still active in most part of the world. And why is the power of blue energy so important to each one of us? What's your take on that? Okay, well, I've just made the point that the power of blue energy on the human physiology is proven. When your energy is high, your body functions as it's meant to function. When your energy is low, it struggles. And it doesn't matter whether that struggling is the result of cancer or COVID or lack of sleep or poor digestion or just shortening your life. So I don't want to sound miserable, but if your energy is low, you're saying to your body, struggle, pal. And that's crazy. 
because it's got enough to do without having to worry about your mind. So that's one of the first reasons. The second reason is you think better. The, what's clear is that the thinking process of the brain responds to, to energy, positive and negative. You think better when your energy is high. You think really, really better when your energy is high with one other person and you think together, right? And yeah. not only that, No, I, uh, I mean, I couldn't agree more on this end because I teach service and I always say that the moment when someone walks into your organization, the energy that is portrayed by your people either will make or break the business deal, the stay of that particular guest or even the visit. And in fact, I use this analogy of energy as when you land an international destination, as you get off the Euro bridge and step into the terminal in the airport, the first person who greets or not greets gives an impression about your country. And that's the energy of your country. So the first person yeah. when we meet is immigration and the immigration actually can make a huge difference. But the question is, do they know? The difference that they can make most of the time they don't because these things are not being taught to these immigration officers around the world i think in some countries they do in some countries they don't so probably there is maybe a bigger global project that there are some countries that are more virtuous than others yeah yeah you see you have worked 50 years and i know that during the time of appetite regime in south africa Tough times, challenging. You also knew a lot of people who are very close to Nelson Mandela. You have worked with uh, somebody that I actually have learned and have had the opportunity to, obviously, in his organization, I had the opportunity to work so Kersner. And you must have met many other people. You have been in uh, many, many boards as board of directors and in some cases as chairmen. What is the best advice? you have received of all the years and an advice that you still remember? I think two, two things quickly. My English teacher at school, for whatever reason, wanted to encourage us to love English. And he thought that the best way to make us love English was to use it. So he made us write it, read it, and um, speak it. And in order to prove that you had done those things, you had to keep the thing which he called a reader's notebook, but was actually a journal. And I think one of my most precious learnings was from him, that when you write in your journal, right, you're writing to the real Colin. You, your ego, which always wants to interrupt, has got no pencil, so it can't join you. So your, your journal is an exercise of exploring with yourself your own growth, your own mistakes, your own learnings. So that was one of the most interesting. And another one was Mandela. Uh, there was a wonderful priest here who was an activist, anti-apartheid activist by the name of Trevor Huddleston, 
who became Archbishop Trevor Huddleston. And when he died, the funeral was Archbishop Trevor Huddleston, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and President Mandela, all in the cathedral. And there was a whole lot of fanciness, and the procession arrived, and Tutu announced that we would sing the national anthem. Now, the national anthem was new to us, because it was just after 94. So away went the, the, the organ, which is the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere, and away went the choir, and they sang Kosi Sikalele, which is the first verse, Kosi Sikalele, which is the second verse. And then suddenly the organ stopped, and it didn't play the third and the fourth verses, which are in English and Afrikaans. And there was a silence in that cathedral that you could have dropped the pin and heard it. Because suddenly we were confronted with bullshit. Our national anthem is not national. We use part of it for some functions and another part maybe for other functions. By that stage, Archbishop Tutu was right next to Mandela in the aisle and Mandela was on the, in the pew in the front. And Mandela turned to, with, to him with that voice of Mandela's, which, is, which you can't copy. My Lord Archbishop, he says, with the voice that you could have heard in Maldives. I am a guest in your house. And as a guest in your house, I should do what you require me to do. But I am also the president of this country. And that was not the national anthem. Now play it again and play it properly. So what it taught me was that there are moments in leadership when you have to take control. Not all the time. That's not an excuse for being a, a power player playing red all the time. But every now and again, for the sake of a bigger picture, you have to say, no, that's not acceptable. So that was a dramatic piece of advice. You yeah. You see, when I listen to the story, especially about Nelson Mandela, and obviously he's a leader that I follow, I read about it, and, and I you know, listen to some of his speeches. Still, even today, some of his speeches are my favorite speeches that I often listen to get inspiration and ideas on how I can communicate that to people. And I think the value there is integrity, that doing things right when no one is watching. There are hundreds of people probably who are not watching that event, but when you are the president of the country, you have a responsibility towards what is most important to your nation, which is the values of your nation, the national anthem, and the rest of the thing. So he wanted to make sure that everybody is treated fairly in that house because you don't want to be in a house where some feel that they are not being respected. So definitely he took the right decision. And you are right. In leadership, we have to take control at times. And, and then I'll give you another quick story of Monday. Sure. I, I went to have breakfast with him at his home. And uh, we were halfway through breakfast and I said to him, sir, would you mind if my son Steve met you after we've had breakfast? He said, where is he? So I said, he's sitting in the car. He drove me here. He said, go and fetch him. <laughs> Just like that. And I, thought, oh, oh. I got up and I went to fetch him. I said, Steve, uh, Mandela wants you to come inside. At the stairs of his house, he was waiting for Steve. And he said to him, Steve, are you Steve or Stephen? He said, I'm Steve, sir. He said, how are we going to ever teach your father that you don't leave your driver in the car without breakfast? <laughs> Come inside and have breakfast with me. Yeah. So what was that? Another simple leadership lesson. Just because he's your driver, 
there's not a reason why I shouldn't go on breakfast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and you see, there's a great leadership wisdom there. Many of yeah. us, we do that, but we don't see the power of it. And how you treat your driver is how you will treat the rest of the world. That's and right. This is the reason why we love Nelson Mandela, I think. And yeah. um, I often do these leadership talks and I ask the audiences that if there's one leader that globally everybody will say is a great leader, is Nelson Mandela. Different, yeah. different views on other leaders, but there are a few people. And one of them is Nelson Mandela. And I think because of the humility and because of the teaching when he was the president, also when he was 20 years in prison and thereafter, what he did. And I think we should do another talk one time just on Nelson Mandela. <laughs> I'm trying yes, to because some great wisdoms there we can share with our listeners. Yeah, and it's a good story because Nelson Mandela as a young man was red, red, red of his. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't much blue about him when he was young. So what did he learn? How did he learn to play blue? It was an amazing story, which he shared with me. We'll share it one day. Absolutely. Now, we'll, we'll definitely arrange another topic just specifically on leadership and talk about Nelson Mandela. Now, I, I, I have to say that uh, this is our first episode of this podcast, Blue Energy. This is the best conversation that I had in the past seven days, I must say. And I'm sure listeners are going to love it. And I appreciate the humility that you have in sharing this. And to all the listeners of this podcast, if there's one advice that I have to give you, we as young industry professionals and youths that are to serve our nation in future or globally, we have to develop this humility of learning from those who are older than ours because they have done this before, they have lived longer than us, they've seen good and better and worse than what we have experienced. So there's a lot that we can learn. So develop the humility. Colin, as we're about to close, your closing remarks, what would you like to say? I want to just say that this has been an absolutely blue experience for me. My energy is rocket high. Thank you, Afif. <laughs> and bless all of you who have the pleasure of listening to this podcast with Afif. Thank you, Colin. And I'm sure we'll have another time where we're going to speak about leadership lessons from Nelson Mandela. It's going to be a complete different new episode on our program of Blue Energy. To all our listeners, thank you very much. And please feel free to share your reviews and your thoughts and comments on how we can make this podcast even better. Have a wonderful day ahead and stay tuned. In seven days, you will have our next new podcast with a new thought leader an expert speaker but the good news is that every time when you listen to our podcast you will feel better than when you started listening to the podcast and i know you will do even better thank you very much until thank then. you so much bless you bless you too bye